0: And now, ladies and gentlemen, your attention, please.
1: Big decisions have even bigger consequences in the world of marketing leadership, where data informs everything, second chances are rare, and ROI is no longer the only metric that matters. Please join us as we go Inside the Funnel.
2: Welcome to Inside the Thunnel with myself, Nasser Salul, and my colleagues Jenna Watson and Dan Temby. For any long term listeners, you're going to feel a sense of deja vu. um, because today we're going to be talking about the death of the third party cookie. But think of this as the director's cut, the Redux version. This is the version where we learn Jenna's backstory that was sadly omitted by the studios on the cutting room floor in the first version back in October. So, welcome, guys. Jenna, what is your backstory? Why, why are you so
0: angry at this
1: subject? <laughs> is that a
0: new segment? Instead of Dan being frustrated, it's why Yeah, is now Jenna it's angry? why is Jenna angry? I think we wow. should pivot to that. Wow, that I, think, sounds... I
1: think it's happening right now. Well, sir, yeah. I am angry because I'm going to have to completely and totally rethink everything I've ever known in digital marketing, which I've been in since the very beginning. That's largely why I'm angry. I can find some subsets of anger if you'd like me to delve into it further. But without a cookie, everything we've ever done has to change. And there is no good information yet, except our brilliant conjecture, which we're about to share with our listener, as to how that's going to change. So I'm left in limbo, which makes me angry.
2: What? This is not going to do your uh, imposter syndrome any good, <laughs> is it? It's really
0: not. <laughs> <I'm> crushing. <laughs>
2: Here's the three things I know. I'm gonna repeat them ad nauseum to new audiences.
0: Wow. Wow. <laughs> I didn't know we were gonna go down this. Here route we are. This morning, Jeez. Yeah. Alright. So Dan, why don't you
2: kick us off? What's the subject about? And why and more importantly, why are we revisiting this?
0: Well, anybody that remembers the first episode, as we fondly do, um you know, we went down a few paths and a lot of that stuff is kind of true and remedial, it's relatively accurate um, from a remedial point of view. Uh, And we'll touch on that a little bit more in a moment here. But I think, you know, the thing that stands out for me is I do remember saying with some emphasis that, oh, you know, they're not going to change. The third party cookies aren't going to go away until they come up with like a a rip and replace alternative or a viable, suitable alternative. But uh, anybody that's been you know, close to this space, especially over the last six to eight weeks is we'll be very familiar with the fact that Google's now said that that's not going to happen. And there will be no, um, you know, uh, individually identifiable mechanism uh, available once the third-party cookies are fully deprecated. Uh, And of course, that sent the industry into a bit of a tailspin as we started to wonder, well, what is, how are we going to do all the things that we do? Uh, And I think that's why we decided to come back today with this topic and re-explore that because since then, uh, you know, all of those changes have have taken place and Jen and I have spent combined hundreds of hours down deep rabbit holes researching and reading and learning and trying to educate people on our interpretation of exactly what's happening. And we think we have a pretty good grasp of it now. So hopefully we can share that with our listeners and, uh, you know, help keep people sort of level headed about what's to come.
2: So Dan, uh, you reference your emphatic statement. Actually, let's play that previous emphatic statement for our listener.
0: Is the cookie, the third party cookie actually going away? The future mechanism may exist as some derivative of the way cookie technology inherently is, is, is It's simple and elegant and very highly secure by default, um, I think a variant of that may or may not be, uh, may very well likely be part of the, of the solution, but we're definitely moving towards a more uh, consented identity based system. Uh, you just look at what's happening, and it may be a topic for another episode the difference, the emergence of uh, CDPs or customer data platforms out of the DMP, data management platform world. DMPs, anonymous data. Uh, not necessarily permission-based, CDPs, very much first-party customer data that is based on a relationship or a transaction or permission. So as we see that evolution, I think the same kind of thing is going to happen in the tracking Tracking, and remarketing world world with with the use of cookies or identity tracking uh, alternatives.
2: So Dan... Do you want to
0: apologize for that statement that we pulled out of the digital archive? No Considering... apology. Now, so the only apology <laughs> I make is really for you. Uh, when any, when anyone asks me about you, I that's my <laughs> immediate reaction. But uh, otherwise, I'm good. Thanks.
2: All right, good, good. So we'll, that's just water under but the bridge. But I will.
0: But I no, no. You make a good point, and that's. I mean, it's 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 emblematic of this space generally, where oftentimes we'll you know, we, we learn and understand something and we speak to it with some level of authority. But then, of course, it's a dynamic area and it changes. Uh, and we need to be able to sort of pivot and <clears throat> understand what's what's different about, uh, especially in these evolving spaces, because this is not a regular thing. I mean, this is, Jen and I have said on uh, to lots of people so far, this is one of the bigger things that's happened in our industry. You know, there's SEO algorithm updates, and then there are ranking factor updates, and there are adjustments to the way MarTech works. And none of them, none of them are as significant as this shift in thinking, not only thinking, but in like technical mechanism. Uh, And that's, I think, it's exciting for me as a technologist. I think it's really exciting to be around at the birth of a new way of doing things. Um, But as a business person, who, you know, we are held to account for performance and effective spending of media. And what have you done for me lately? And that stuff gives us some pause. We need to be ready to do this as effectively as possible.
2: Fair. So, Jenna, give us some context. What's actually happening? And start with why.
1: Okay. So, let us go back into our time machines to the not so long ago when... Facebook went and did a boneheaded Cambridge Analytica scandal. I mean, they didn't do it. They didn't mean for the scandal to happen, but it happened, right? So John Q. Public, Internet user number one, understood all of a sudden when there was all these articles in the press about Facebook and Cambridge Analytica exactly how much data these platforms had on them. And it made them clutch their pearls and go, Ugh, I had no idea. Because we know, of course, we live and breathe in it every single day. But most people didn't really understand how this whole gig works. That's one element of it. On the other hand, there's been legislation. So GDPR, CCPA, PIPEDA, the one I can never say, PIPEDA, PIPEDA, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> Up in
0: Canada, I think we call that PIPEDA. <laughs> PIPEDA. <laughs> PIPEDA.
1: <laughs> PIPEDA. Um,
0: it's, like, it's
2: like it's like the the pipped, uh uh, Pipper of Hamlin, right? Be, but. Yes, it's
1: very <laughs> yes. much like that. <laughs> so <Yes. laughs> there's, been, there's been a push by consumers for greater control, transparency, and then there's the legislative arm of this that's saying, hey, this is too big, this is too scary, let's knock it off, eh? So the browsers have really kind of led this charge. And when I say browsers, I'll tell you, let me revisit that. We're going to go back to Apple as an entity. So when privacy really started coming to the fore of the conversation, Apple leapt on that bandwagon and started driving that train. Ooh, mixing metaphors, bandwagons, and trains. I don't know. I don't know if those go together or not. But they said, "We are privacy. We're Apple. We believe in it. Customers should have privacy, et cetera. And so they started doing things like their ITP releases for Safari. Now they have app tracking transparency, which will actually do a pop up on an app and say, We're going to use your customer data. Will you allow it? Yes or no? So they really kind of led this charge. And right now on Safari, as well as Firefox and Edge and Brave, all third party cookies are already blocked. But the big deal is going to be in mid to late next year, 2022 when Chrome also blocks a third-party cookie, because Chrome has the lion's share of the marketplace as far as browsers mm-hmm. go. So when that happens, there's not going to be a viable use case for third-party cookies on any workable browser.
2: Mm-hmm. So, so what does that actually mean when you say there's not going to be a use case for, for third-party cookies? Well, that, What's uh, the impact?
0: Right, and I think it might be a good idea to just make sure everyone's aligned with everyone talks about first party third party and second party in the middle there is really critical as well and especially in the way the world is going to work in the future getting your head around second party data is a big part of that so just uh, by means of a recap first party cookies you know you're with you're you're engaging with a browser uh with a website that website application as it's rendering code to your browser it drops a piece of uh code into your browser under the domain that it the, the, uh, the, that you're requesting. So the browser says shoestore.com, and then shoestore.com puts a cookie on your computer, and it's like an ID badge. So next time you come back, it can read that, and it can pick up information about you and your browser and your behavior, or just an ID number that it can stitch back to data that collected only the first time. Other businesses are doing that as well, tire shop or fashion shop or whatever. All of those are first party. If two of those entities were to get together and to share their information through a commonly known identifier, like your login credentials, then that would be second-party data. So someone else's first-party data is your second-party data, uh, and that's super valuable uh, now, and it's even more so uh, when the third-party use case, which is when you're on shoestore.com, and while that page is rendering, you know, adtech.com is dropping a cookie on your computer because Shoestore put a little snippet of code or a tag in their tag container or in the top of their web page and it dropped a a cookie from another domain not one you're visiting and they're the ones that are aggregating all of this powerful audience data and handshaking you across multiple domains and tracking your behavior in your business um, and allowing marketers to be able to tap into those behavioral profiles and leverage them so that first second third is the key and that third party one obviously um, is is so critical to so many of the use cases that we find in our sort of day-to-day lives.
2: So for anybody who, like me, is having difficulty following along between first party, third party, and second party, and how they all interact, Mm -hmm. uh, we will be dropping um, a visual in the podcast Rewind episode write-up. Where we're going to be laying it all out mm-hmm. in an easy to follow way. Yeah, uh, certainly <clears throat> far easier to follow than Dan, definitely. Uh, <laughs> and I think, and
0: not not to make light of it, but this su- subject, if you don't really, if you don't really understand how things work today, then you can't fully appreciate how they're going to change tomorrow. So it is very important to get your head around the way things are uh, and how that all functions. So we'll we'll help support that with some visuals for sure.
2: so so what is the change going to what is the change going to be and what will you be able to still do
1: so materially let me put this into very black and white terms that any digital marketer can understand you know how if you're a person on the internet and you go browse fashionstore.com and you're looking at a specific pair of pants Later on, you'll be on some different website and you'll see that same pair of pants in a dynamic retargeting ad served up to you because those are the pants you looked at. That targeting based on an anonymous user profile that's based on a third-party cookie on a one-to-one basis will never happen again in that same way with that same level of specificity. So... Because cookies, to Dan's point, you can drop a cookie, the user can remain anonymous because they're not logged in, they're not authenticated anywhere, but it understands where you've been and what you've looked at. That's the kind of thing that we use in remarketing all day long. And for most marketers, this is going to be a problem mm-hmm. because, you know, aside from bidding on your own brand and paid search, remarketing tends to drive a significant return on ad spend or impressive cost per whatever your metric is, right? mm mm-hmm. What you will still be able to do, though, is a couple couple things. Number one, you can, live, you can live perfectly well inside of walled gardens. So what I mean by that is you can still go create a marketing plan inside of Google. That's Google Ads, which is less applicable here, but um, Gmail, Discovery, YouTube, any Google-owned property you'll be able to target people and follow them around based on what they're doing on Google just fine because all of that is owned by Google and therefore it's first party. Better yet, a lot of the times when you're on a Google property, you're actually authenticated anyway. Your little round picture is up in the corner, you're signed in. What falls apart, though, is something like GDN because a GDN is a series of other people's domains right? So if the third-party cookie is the thing that provides the handshake about user behavior from domain to domain to domain, and if that goes away, then the idea that you can follow somebody around based on what they've done on multiple domains isn't going to work. Likewise, you can play on Facebook and Instagram all day long. You can use their great targeting with things that people have given to the platform, right? They follow certain pages, they like certain things, they tell them their demographics, etc. But today... A lot of what we do is if somebody visits my site, if, if I own shoestore.com and somebody visits my site but they don't convert, I can go retarget them on Facebook or Instagram. That too is going to be a thing that goes away, right? So there will still be ways to target people, but it's that really granular, one to one, anonymized remarketing that we're really going to miss out on a lot. And then the functionality of what's going to have to change. Instead of using third-party cookies, the way that we identify and target audiences is gonna change completely.
2: So these are the things that are gonna go away, but what is replacing them? Um, Dan, can you talk functionally about what mm-hmm. uh, what are the plans to uh, augment profiles and, and so on moving forward? Sure,
0: yeah, and... Um... Again, before we get into that, it's important to understand, like, to Jenna's point about browsers, you know, anybody that's heard about the Google Privacy Sandbox, I mean, that is the center of this universe presently. Uh, And while that's got a Google brand on it, it's really connected to the Chromium project, which is the open source project behind uh, Chrome and other browsers, by the way, um, that tap into that resource as well. Uh, They... So there's a very active community, uh, and the Privacy Sandbox is really a series of API proposals to address uh, and satisfy these third-party use cases without tracking mechanisms. So privacy-preserving um, approaches to solving these real-world problems. And you know, interestingly, we're sitting here and we've spent 15 minutes introducing and talking and we're talking about marketing and remarketing and that is just simply one Mm -hmm. of the problems (laughs) that needs to be addressed because when you take third-party cookies away you are taking so so much stuff away and we're thinking about it through a very narrow perspective so let me just give you some context there so if you summarize the privacy sandbox and the core themes you know the first one is really this idea of selecting and delivering relevant advertising and that's kind of uh, that's that's the topic at hand here, because that's what we care very much about. Uh, And you're going to hear us talk in a moment about flock um, and then turtledove subsequently, which then became fledge and also with a hundred other bird names, which we'll get into in a minute. Um, But of course, after we've selected and delivered advertising, there's measurement of performance and conversion, especially for upper funnel and multi-touch attribution. So that is heavily reliant on third-party cookies. So there are API proposals. To solve that problem as well which we're not going to go into it's out of the scope of this conversation but that's something that needs to be addressed but just keep in mind <clears throat> third-party cookies are such a key part of the business combating spam fraud and denial of service so any of you that have ever had to click on a capture or a recapture box or pick the palm trees or the bicycles out of the grid of pictures or slide the little jigsaw puzzle piece across any of you that have ever had to do that guess what that's a third-party cookie so that's gonna break so there needs to be a way to serve that utility without uh, while preserving third party privacy really interesting combating fingerprinting you know there are proposals in the sandbox talking about how do we preempt the circumventions that will likely occur as people try to get around these measures with other ways to do a one to one identification so they're already baking in mechanisms to preserve and block that so there's a proposal called the privacy budget or a thing called willful IP blindness. And again, anybody having a hard time sleeping, I urge you to go to GitHub and read some of these white papers. They will send you right off because they are deep uh, and complex in some cases. Uh, And then a really interesting use case that I like very much um, is the ability to allow entities with multiple domains to declare and group them as first party. So what I mean by that is if you consider a restaurant holding company with multiple brands, organizationally, they run their business through these you know, variety of front-facing brands, which are different domains, which to the rest of the world appear to be third party to one another, but to that organization are absolutely first party and they need and should be able to understand their customers' behavior between their portfolio of brands. So all of these use cases have been kind of identified and there are very interesting server-side API-driven proposals to account for them. And let me just touch quickly the reasons so much of this stuff is going now server-side and API-driven is because there is an understanding that if the developer of a of a of a site or a platform or an application is writing in code for identity purposes, then it's going to be more, um, more intentional and more uh, re- required and valid than if you just grab a code a, a piece of JavaScript code off some website and drop it in your page, right? Which any marketer can do on their CMS. Because those things are creating the Cambridge Analytica challenges that Jenna mentioned before. All of this plug-and-play JavaScript uh, is creating real vulnerabilities in the privacy space. So a lot of this stuff is shifting to server-side containers, which are going to be much more purposefully deployed uh, and inherently secure anyway. So actually, incidentally, go and check your new visit counts on Safari the Safari ITP has blocked first-party JavaScript cookies um, in response to this security processes. So uh, interesting thing to do is go and on your analytics uh, look uh, filter out Safari users and look at the percentage of Safari users that are classified as new visits. And right around March 2019, you'll see a spike upward. That's because they started to burn first-party cookies after seven days back uh, in 20, beginning of 2019 when they released ITP 2.1, and that's, again, to to preserve the, the, the privacy of people and sort of lead that charge. Um, and that's a very interesting little shift that happened that most people didn't notice, but you'll notice a, a notable uptick in your new visit percentages through Safari.
2: So, Jenna, given all of these changes, what as marketers should we
0: do? <laughs>
1: panic run crazily waving your <laughs> arms no don't panic the last or, thing or
0: or complain really loudly and say, it's not <laughs> yes, fair yes complain really loudly i don't, loudly, want this and I don't not my favorite. like this i don't want it and hopefully it will all go back to the, the normal
1: <laughs> the first thing you need to do is you need to understand what the replacement proposals are so dan mentioned flock let's let's dig into flock i think mm-hmm. briefly before we get into the like okay but then really what do you do so flock is floc it stands for Federated Learning of Cohorts. So, what Flock aims to do is to actually take all of that activity that used to be done by a third party cookies and keep everything on the user's browser. That's the big change. People need to understand this is a mechanical change of how things are functioning. It's not necessarily that targeting is changing per se or the way media works. Well, it is changing, but but it's it's a foundational, functional, technical element of how that happens. So essentially, this is the replacement for third-party cookies that's come to the forefront and people like the most. It keeps all of your own browsing history on your own browser, and it runs machine learning on your own browser. So you become one in a cohort. You become assigned to a flock based on your personal behavior, but you are never known. You are not identified as an individual user, you are one of many inside of a flock of people that look like you. So understanding that at its core is really critical to
0: understanding what the changes are going to be.
2: How do you populate the flock as it were?
0: (laughs) Perhaps I can have a a poke at that. And this is maybe the most interesting reading you can do on this topic Mm -hmm. is trying to get everybody's interpretation of the, the dense mathematical literature and the white paper and uh we feel we have a pretty strong handle on it, but and there's a couple of things that we want to touch on here. F- Flock is simply a mechanism to give everybody a number, and that's it. Flock in and of itself will do nothing more than furnish your browser with an ID number that says to anybody that cares to ask for it, so any publisher or advertiser website that cares to inject a small piece of code that says, give me this browser's flock ID, the only thing they will get is this number, right? And this number is then going to be used by the person receiving it, whether that's an ad tech platform or a publisher platform, to label and dimensionalize and give attribute to that number in their own database, so then it can be, characterized as an audience that may or may not be in market for something or whatever. So that all happens by the ad text. But to answer NASA's question about how is this number created, um, we believe that in the Chrome updates, the machine learning uh, coefficients and all of the different factors that, that help the math execute locally are going to be delivered as part of the Chrome update. Your browser, your recent browsing history is going to be evaluated, analyzed, because Don't forget that Google has, it it understands context. So every line in your browser history, it can understand context of those lines based on its search uh, index. It can aggregate and group together your uh, browsing behavior and assign you a number where basically what its promise is to advertisers and publishers is that if your number is 29056, I use that number because that's the number I was in when I was in market for a new television and I activated some backdoor flags on Chrome to to turn on the flock alpha test 29056 basically what that's telling people is that I don't know who this guy is I'm not going to tell you what he's interested in but I am going to tell you if you see anybody with 29056 then you can feel confident that they are all very similar that they are all they're not the same person but their behaviors and their interests and their preferences in the recent past are all extremely similar from a statistical math perspective, right? So anybody that's ever seen a clustering chart uh, where there's a big X, Y axis and thousands of dots and they're all kind of grouped together in clouds, that's what it's trying to do. And a cohort implies there's some transients to a group. So it's a group of people with some transients. And that means that behaviors shift and preferences change, and once I buy a television, I'm no longer in market for a television, so now my behavior is gonna shift. So as I'm recalculated, my cohort ID will change. I will only ever be a member of one cohort at a time. And I find that very interesting. Um, I'll never know who else is 29056, nor will they know me. That no other data will ever leave my browser again. It will simply be this number broadcast out again to anybody that wants it. and as my behavior shifts, my number will shift. And that just means that I've moved into a different group that's reflective of my new set of interests. And I think it's a very interesting approach to what, what is a very complex problem.
2: I'm excited for cohort parties. Oh. I, I think, could you imagine you know the 29056 party where everybody <laughs> who behaves similar to you shows up at the same I would time? I love
0: that party.
1: Terrifying, yet, so. a whole bunch of Dan's standing around. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> loudly broadcasting opinions and, and telling Frustrate, you you're wrong sharing
0: their frustrates i yeah. can't wait to get to the one nine three seven five nasser party where everybody stands around pontificating and articulating you know tribal wisdom from the old country
2: it's extremely good looking yeah. extremely well
0: extremely, handsome, <laughs> yeah, extremely yeah, yeah. handsome cohort no um but it's a really interesting case and i think you know thinking forward if flock became a becomes a ubiquitous standard don't forget right now guys every ad tech or every co group of ad techs when they drop a cookie id that that ID is unique to them so you've got an identity mm-hmm. with this platform then you've got an identity with that platform this suggests that in the future the browser will offer up the identity of the group you represent so now there's a more stable identification token that is more ubiquitous across the industry. So I think that's got some interesting benefits. And then the way they're characterized and labeled, as publishers and advertisers observe your behavior, right now they observe your behavior and they fire it back up to the Trade Desk or Quantcast or um Blue Kai or whatever the platform is, and they report your behavior back to that to that platform's unique identifier. If now all your behavior is being aggregated against a common identifier notwithstanding it's of a flock not of you as a person i feel that the attributes of these numbers as reported by the ad text is going to become refined over time more solidified more accurately representative of the audiences they're in and i think that could be powerful um and then of course take that to the next conclusion is that When I'm out of market, when I bought that TV, whatever platform I bought it on and whatever ad tech they use, they got the signal that I'm out of market. But any other ad tech that picked up a signal that I was in market for television kept firing ads to me. And I can tell you with some certainty that I kept seeing ads long after I had purchased that TV. In the new world, as soon as I buy the TV and my behavior changes, my flock ID shifts. So anybody that was buying audience under 29056 looking for in-market TV buyers, they can continue to do that. I just won't be in it. I left and I moved on and people took my place. So I think that there's some durability and resilience to the attribution of characteristics to these new flock identifiers that we don't have in the current world. And that's a very interesting idea. And Jen and I have geeked out thinking about what that could mean for you know, buying strategies going forward.
1: Should actually be pretty cool.
0: So,
2: given that context, one one final point of context: we uh, we put some research into market with Forrester. It was the first uh, international look at the post pandemic marketing landscape to understand how prepared marketers are for what's coming and and uh, and the activation with changing behavior. And the research found that the biggest chance that brands face is rooted in customer data losing cookies is only going to make the problem worse. So I know that you guys have worked on a three-step cookie doomsday prepper, excuse me, a three-step cookie doomsday preparedness. <laughs> say that plan. three did times say fast. That right? You sure did. But- you know what? Oh, I'm, I'm going to allow it. I'll allow it. <laughs> All right, thank you. Yeah. So, so what are these steps? Dan, why don't you kick us off?
0: And I think it's important to say first, the reason this stuff is important I believe in the new world, you will be able to show up as a small business, medium-sized business, use these new cohorting tools and the and the attributes that are offered to you by the platform, and have some marketing success. No problem. They're not going to just kneecap the whole industry and say, ah, if you don't get 100 things right ahead of time, you're not going to be effective. This is going to work, right? But we kind of operate in this high Fidelity, upper echelon, high performance case. And and I think in those use cases, it's very interesting as we read, uh, the needle basically says that the common opinion is somewhere between 50 to 95% as effective as today's um, mechanisms and tactics. So 50 to 95, that's a giant <laughs> spectrum. And depending on your Yikes. budget and your yeah. ROI numbers, that could mean seven-figure swings of outcome here. And the only thing, the only thing that everyone agrees, and when I say everyone, I mean advertisers or people representing other browsers or people representing privacy uh, organizations or the the people writing for web.dev, right, who are a little more biased to say, hey, our proposals are excellent. The only thing they all agree on is the better more prepared you are to leverage what you know about your first party data and your existing customer set, the farther that needle will swing to the right. That seems to be the ubiquitous sort of opinion. Uh, Behind that, everyone starts to argue about what's going to work and what's not going to work. But because of that, and because we really want to see people kind of move that needle to the right, the first thing is really about readiness assessments. You know, you can use the word audit, but audit sounds passive and something that accountants do. But a readiness assessment, and we see three big vectors. The first thing is to understand how reliant are you on third-party data. So it's almost like a vulnerability assessment, but looking specifically at third-party signaling and articling it and cataloging it specifically so you understand where it plays in your uh, ecosystem. And then, of course, doing a CRM data quality audit, understanding, hey, on your CRM, how usable and complete and ready to go is your CRM data. Because a lot of people have CRMs, but a lot of people, it's not very good. And it's, there's a lot of excuses flying around about why it's not where it needs to be. So that needs to be understood. Then it's about looking at all of the technology in your MarTech stack that can throw off a first-party signal. So where can you pick up first-party signals from within your marketing stack? So web analytics, automation, CMS, CRM. If you've got a CDP, if you're using CRO, you can get first-party signaling from CRO tools. Which of these tools can offer you a usable, informative first-party signal? And then the final thing is, what is your durable first-party identifier? What is your way of binding all of that together? So I've said to other people recently, you know, what the pandemic has done for remote work and digitization of business, this flock thing is going to do for Customer 360 Right. Everyone's been talking about I need to get a a customer 360, and we've had episodes where we've talked about binding our data sets together to build a 360 profile of our customers. This shift is going to force your hand and get you there quicker because it's so easy right now to cruise along and use third-party signaling to fill a hole or get really good ROI out of a tool where you can just target people who are in market for three things you care about. In the new world, that's going to change a little bit, and if you really care about your first-party data, you can bring it all together. So. Assessment of third-party vulnerabilities, marketing technology, and first-party signaling review, and then a way to bind it all together, uh, and then having a plan to go and do all of that. And then, of course, the second step is to execute on that plan and do all the wiring and get all the hard, heavy lifting done. But if you get there, then it offers up tremendous opportunities way ahead of the the, the deadline. And and Jenna, you can talk a little bit more about what what that looks like.
1: Yeah, I think I think it's funny that we say that as like this is the three-step cookie doomsday plan, but this has always been the plan. We've always (laughs) encouraged advertisers to do these things, right? So if you haven't heard us say it yet, get your data in order, okay? So once you do all those things, the next logical step is to take what you can and learn from it in the world we know today, where things get bought the way we know how with third-party cookies, things get measured the same way we know how. Go take everything you've learned from your CRM database, Find those personas out in the wild and start to act like Flock in your media targeting. So right now today, there are in-platform targeting capabilities that we think are going to act a whole lot like Flock is probably going to act. So Mm. a good example of that is Google has in-market audiences, right? So Google takes user behavior signals and says, this person's probably in market for a TV. Very similar to 29056, just done through cookies rather than, than Flock. So if you haven't previously tested those native platform targeting capabilities, now would be the time to do that to understand roughly how they're going to work for your business. This is also the time that you have to go test every single message you can. So uh, on-site, do your CRO testing, test personalization, test your offers, see what gets people excited and what these audiences you already know respond to. Email. If email <laughs> isn't already your best performing channel, it certainly probably will be in the future. So test your layout, your, your offers, your everything you've got possible to test in email. And then in media, media you should be asking yourself what can I do differently than I normally do? Because the goal, if the goal is to have a rich and robust first party data environment, you want to get new people to your site and authenticate them so you can know something about them. So that might mean buying from different media sources than you normally do. That might mean buying higher up the funnel than you normally do, and that might mean having entirely different KPIs. Which a KPI could be a new a new visitor or an authentication rate, right? But thinking about how do I get huge, yeah. yeah how do I get more of these people into my into my site so that I can know them and I authenticate them and have that data right. at hand.
0: If you're only looking at ROI for the last period through commercial transactions that happen in the last period, as most people do because they have short term goals to hit, you're missing what this is about.
1: Yep. Right. Yep.
0: So carving off a sliver and having a set in your measurement framework. And of course, all of our listeners are sophisticated marketers and they have a well understood measurement framework, right? Assuming they do, your secondary KPI layer, at least secondary KPIs, should talk about audience growth, right? First party data, audience growth as a percentage of base, period to period. Authentication rate of new customers. How many new people? Did you get to come and to compel them to authenticate? And your UX team should be looking at how to grow that number, right? It's not going to put money in the bank and show up on your PL next week, but it's going to pay dividends down the line when everyone is going crazy in this land grab for first party data. Watch and see how many websites are going to be forcing you to authenticate, to consume what would otherwise be freely available content as they... Sh- clamor to get their hands on your durable identifier, which is your login credentials right so I believe that stuff is going to happen and you know the smart guys are getting ahead of that now and thinking about how to measure against that and and, and move towards that so
2: so I think this is really important context because earlier on you talked about you know the middle of 2022 as being kind of the the moving deadline um, as we know it right now mm-hmm. and that can obviously change. And anyone can look at that and say, that's a long way away. I don't have to do anything yet. I can deal with this in in the end. But what we're talking about here, build first party data, audience test, experiment under current conditions, do all of these things. This takes a lot of time. There's a lot of work to be done here. So get started now, I think, is if you haven't already. um, I really hope you have. Uh, But if you haven't, give us a call. Yeah. because you've you've got to get yeah. on this.
0: And we love talking about this stuff. Like this is, you know, again, we made a joke earlier about people who are whining about it. And this is stupid. This is it. And it's like, you know, we are always of the opinion, like look at automation tools, Jenna, and all the AI where you can set and forget. You know, yeah. it's not the only thing you should be doing, but you also have to do some of it. Right. So just embracing the change and being prepared for it. Um, and we love doing that stuff and we're we're always sort of deep in those subjects and, and ready to talk to people about that so it's definitely uh this is very interesting what's going on and and we're definitely enjoying the journey
2: so i'm getting a lot of both excites and frustrates out of this episode uh dan do you want to kick us off maybe with the frustrates and jenna round us out at the end with the excites <laughs> with
0: the angry so man i always have to do the frustrate um
1: just just play do, do you, you want to do, type, you wanna do the excites <laughs> play your type <laughs>
2: <laughs> play
0: your type i think i've been very positive here you actually today, have guys.
1: you actually have
0: i i reject the characterization <laughs> um no no i get and again i think that's why maybe why subconsciously i raise that point what frustrates me is people who just complain about change right who just, you know, I've read so uh, I've so much research on this stuff and so many articles I've read. And in the lack of any real knowledge or the lack of any real ideas about the way forward, people just default to complaining about the fact that this is going to be s- s- stupid or hard or it's not going to work, right? And that kind of frustrates me because that's not how... The industry progresses that 's not how things become more sophisticated. If everybody that ever had a hand in getting us to where we are today took that approach, we wouldn't be anywhere near where we are today, right We would be farther, much farther behind. so I think um, yeah, like get on board, make yourself aware of what 's going on and and aggressively prepare for it and I think attitudinally um, you 'll be in a better place, and you won 't frustrate me as much, which i 'll appreciate. <laughs>
2: And finish us off with the excites, Jenna.
1: (laughs) My biggest excite, well, it's twofold, actually. I'm actually, as a human user of the internet that understands how it works really well, I'm actually excited that there's going to be still valuable and effective marketing that takes my privacy into consideration. I actually like that. As a person whose job is getting our clients really great performance, I'm excited about that. That transience that Dan spoke about, right? You're in market, you're in a cohort, you're in a flock ID. The minute you're out of market, you're out of that ID number. That should make targeting really, really accurate. Never mind having a 30, 60, 90, 120 day cookie expiry, right? As soon as Dan's done buying his TV, he's out of the in market for TV. ID cohort, right? So that should be really great for us. We should actually see some pretty cool performance, I think.
2: Mm-hmm. And with that, thank you, Dan Temby, Jenna Watson. I'm Nassar Salul. Thank you for listening to Inside the Funnel.
1: You've been listening to Inside the Funnel with Jenna Watson, Dan Temby, and Nasser Salul. Until next time, don't forget to like, subscribe, and connect with the AC wherever you see us online.